0: When I was in college, the trendiest brand of clothes, at least for people my age, was a company called Abercrombie & Fitch, and I didn't have a lot of money, but I went there one day, and I bought this really trendy pair of pants. They were brown, and even though they were like the normal measurements of like pants that I would wear, these particular ones had like four or five times more cloth than other pants. They were really... Baggy, and they had like 10 or 11 pockets just all over the place. It was ridiculous how many pockets there were. But it was the year 1998, and in 1998, those were really cool pants. And I'm not kidding, there'd be days when I'd wear them, people would kind of look at me, and they'd be like, hey, nice pants. Yes. And uh, I think I actually have a picture of them there. And... uh, there's actually the next picture of my girlfriend at the time making fun of those pants. And how big they were. Well, I wonder whatever happened to her. <laughs> All right, you can get rid of that for now. So, those pants were really cool for like the first year or two that I owned them. They were very cool in 1998 and 1999. But then, one day around the year 2000, I made the mistake. wearing them to the inner-city school which I taught in and it did not go well for me I got teased a lot they just weren't cool anymore after all it was a new century right and uh, a bunch of kids in the hallway were laughing one of my favorite students looked at me and she said mr. Scott she just shook her head back and forth and that was all I needed to do to retire the pants not wear them any longer. Let me ask this, have you guys ever been to any of the rock and roll cafes, they're a chain of restaurants all over the country, most major cities have one, and they're decorated with the clothing of famous musicians, right? Have you guys ever been to a place like that, seen the clothing on the wall? At the Hard Rock Cafe in uh, Las Vegas, you can see a fur coat that Barry White used to wear on stage with no shirt underneath, right? (laughs) Just like smell the sweat. You can see a pair of parachute pants that M.C. Hammer used to dance in back in 1991. They have a gold belt with two eagle clasps that Elvis Presley used to wear around his sequined jumpsuits. Uh, And when those clothes were new, they were like the height of fashion. When those celebrities, when those musicians were wearing those for the first time, there was no example of clothing that was cooler. But if you or I, or even a celebrity, wore those same outfits today, you would get laughed out of your office, you would get laughed at by your students, you would get laughed at by your kids, because they would just kind of be seen as a silly relic from the past, right? They're not cool anymore. So this afternoon, our sermon passage takes us to Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, and the focus is this. When you're a follower of Jesus, it's time to adopt new habits, new behaviors, new patterns of thought. When you're a follower of Jesus, don't put on what you used to put on. Stop wearing the speech and the behaviors and the emotional responses of the identity that you had before you followed Christ. If you put on the same things that you put on 20 years ago, everyone's going to think that you're having a crisis of identity. Be new. Be mature. Put on your new self. So that's today's scripture. That's what Paul is writing to his church. That's what he's writing to us. So let's talk about that passage that the worship team read to us from Ephesians 4 to Ephesians 5, 14. Let's talk about it really quickly in three parts. Just for two minutes, I want to talk about the context of this passage so we can understand how it was initially presented. In section two, let's talk about the goal of this passage and what it's asking of those of us who follow Christ. And if you're just kind of investigating Christianity or investigating Jesus, I still think this would be a very valuable um, way of understanding what our goals are as Christ followers. What's on the path? What's at the end of the path? Uh, and then in section three, where I really want to spend our time today is on the encouragement from this passage, because there's encouragement in it for us, and uh, I think we can do this all in about 20 minutes. So let's get started. There's an outline in your uh, in your bulletin that you got when you walked in. All right, the context of this passage, we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now. The author, Paul, is a pastor. And he's writing to a congregation that he had started years earlier, even though he was in prison at the time of the writing of this letter. And the church was very healthy at first, very enthusiastic. They were all growing. But at the time of the writing of this letter, they were were struggling with factions and infighting and stifled growth. And uh, I'm happy that there's not a lot of uh, infighting and factions in our church, but, but maybe just individually in our own lives, From time to time, we feel like things are stifled. We're not getting along with people as we should. So each week this year, we've been, uh, each week uh, since January, we've been kind of looking at this letter, and specifically chapters 4 and 5, where this pastor, Paul, is focusing on ways that our belief in the gospel, our belief in what Jesus Christ has done in his death and resurrection, should change our behaviors. That's kind of the context. Furthermore, Paul's kind of unfolding throughout this letter uh, that, that, that a follower of Jesus shouldn't forget the, the enthusiasm that comes with these core truths that bring us to become followers of Jesus. And so he spends the first three chapters of the letter reminding us of just the wonderful things that are true for us as we follow Jesus. A quick summary includes, and uh, in Ephesians 1.4, he talks about how God chose us to be holy and without blame before him. And it's probably not super common that people tell you that God looks at his children as holy and without blame. I don't know if you guys have ever been familiar with uh, the social media, Twitter, but it's just kind of this, this technology that allows everyone from around the world to interact with each other based on keywords. And what's really kind of dark and unsettling about this technology is... It doesn't really matter what you say if you've got a wide enough audience. Eventually, people will tell you that you're wrong and you're stupid, right? You could put a quote that really inspired you. You could talk about a biography of somebody that you admire. It doesn't really matter. Once enough people see it, somebody will be a dissenter. Somebody will say oh, that's not true. Somebody will say you're wrong for celebrating that. And I think because of that, it sort of illustrates that we do live in a time and an era where it's hard to comprehend. That there could be somebody who's always right. There could be somebody without blame. There could be somebody who's holy. And Ephesians starts off by saying that that person is you. That person is people who follow Jesus Christ. And not because of our actions, but because of what Jesus Christ did to take our punishment and to take our judgment. God looks at us as holy and blameless. And that's what Paul leads with. That's what Paul starts off his letter with. Later on in verse 5, he says... You know, because of Jesus, it was God's good pleasure to adopt us. You guys know that you're adopted by God if you're a follower of Jesus? And I don't mean like a like a like a like a rich kid who who had some trouble with his parents, like I mean like a rescue dog, right? We were like a rescue dog that was mangy and nobody wanted, and we were as unlovable as could be, and, and we're adopted in that sense. We're brought into just all the goodness and all the richness of God's Family It says that in Ephesians one five In Ephesians one seven Paul says you know and don't forget that you've experienced the forgiveness of sins. Um, I spent about sixteen years after graduating from college getting that reminder in the mail. Do you guys remember that that your college loan payment is due right for for fifteen or sixteen years every month that showed up in the mail or then later on in digital form and. You just get this feeling like, oh, I'm never going to get rid of this debt. This is forever going to be a part of my monthly finances. And then one day, all of a sudden, like you're done, you've paid it off. It's not something that will ever be leveraged against you again. Ephesians 1.7, what Paul is starting his letter off with is this reminder that because of Jesus Christ, you're holy and without blame before God. There's no accusations that are merited. You've been adopted out of the lowest depths to the highest parts of heaven. Your sins have been forgiven. That debt isn't something that you have to keep repaying over and over again. It tells us in verse 9 that because of the gospel, God wants to make known his will to us. It tells us in verse 11 that we have obtained an inheritance. And these are just all the beautiful ways that Ephesians starts so that we can get to where we're going. But we can't get to where we're going without starting with all these wonderful things that are true about us according to Paul because of the gospel. That's how chapters 1, 2, and 3 start. And now as we get to section 2 of our sermon, now we get to chapters 4 and 5 of the letter of Ephesians where Paul is like, because of those things, because of those blessings, because of the way that the gospel has transformed us, now here's some things that should be true about us. Here's some growth that people should be seeing in our lives. Now, I start off in that way because if if I just start preaching out of Ephesians 4 and 5, the message that people are going to hear is that to follow Jesus, you have to try harder. You have to be better. You have to be a moral person to experience God's love. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying because of the gospel, because God in His grace and mercy has loved you and adopted you and forgiven you, because we're new, this is how a new person should live, And that's just a really important distinction to point out. It's good news, right? Like, that's good news, right? Good news, because we're new, now there's a new way to live, a new thing to put out. All right, so if, if that's kind of the progression, if that's kind of the context of the letter of Ephesians, uh, there's two goals. There's at least two things in today's verses that we're called to focus on as goals they can be our personal goals, but they're also God's goals, right? Like, you have to be super cautious when any, whenever anybody tells you that they're speaking for God. But when we're reading the Bible and it's telling us what God intends to do in our lives, we can rest assured that that's God speaking to us through Scripture. And today's Scripture is telling us at least two goals that we're going to focus on in the next couple of minutes. The first one is this. This is kind of the main idea. Paul is challenging us to seize this identity as a new person. To put on your new self. Not to wear those bell bottoms that used to be cool when you were in college, right? But but to be new. To put on your new self. Not to continue the urges and the impulses and the behaviors that we used to live out of before we became made new by Christ. Let me read to you uh, how we get this out of this passage. Some beautiful verses from uh, Ephesians 4, 20-24. That's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and true holiness. And again, like we said, this isn't saying that we have to try hard and live a better life and then God loves us. It's saying because God has reached down to us because he's loved us, because Jesus Christ has has taken our place in punishment and judgment. We are made new and now this is the way we wear that newness. Alright, there's there's probably two things that are going to make this difficult for us to really comprehend as a modern audience and I want to point those out in just about 30 seconds or so. Uh, And one of those is this. There's something really unique that is happening in the Greek grammar that Paul is writing this letter in, and it's kind of untranslatable. It's untranslatable in English because our language are structured differently, and it's just very foreign to our current culture as well. So let me point those out quickly. Um, When Paul is telling us to take off the old and put on the new, he's actually using a Greek tense that we don't have in English. That's called the aortis tense, we have the ten, like when I know this is sounding kind of academic, but it's just really simple. When you write something, you can designate if it's happening in the past or the present or the future, just by the words that you choose. Uh, but in the Greek, they've got more tenses, um, and one of them, this aortis tense, it means something that was completed in the past. Okay, that's important to point out. So Paul is clearly saying to take off the old self and to put on the new self. It's not just something we struggle with every day, but it happened. It's a single thing that was completed at a time in your past as you follow Christ. I said there's another reason why this is hard for us to process, and that's because culturally there's just not a lot of things that we completed forever at a point in the past. Let me give you a couple of examples. Somebody might say to you, hey, in uh, 2018 I started going to the gym and doing CrossFit, and I got really physically fit. that doesn't mean they're still physically fit, right? (laughs) It just means they were back then. Someone might be like, yeah, in 1985, I got married to my first wife. Well, that doesn't mean in our culture that you're still married to that person necessarily. You could even say something along the lines of like, yeah, that, that was a really happy time in my life. I bought my dream house. There's not an implication that you still live in that place. So there's a lot of things that we say that are big events, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that is still ongoing. Let me give you another example or two. If somebody said, it was the best day of my life, that was the day I became a mother. That is aortis. That is a single event that's now true forever. If somebody said, yeah, um, that was a happy year for me, I graduated from college. That's something that is probably, that, that is always true. So I just want to point out that when we're told to take off the old and put on the new in terms of our spiritual identity, according to the text, the way that it was written, it's talking about something that is a single past finished action. And that's really significant as we try to make sense of how to apply this and how to live it out. The preacher Tim Keller gives a great example of what putting on this new life means and how it's more than just trying to be a good person. In a sermon from 2011, he tells about a transformation from somebody that he saw firsthand from his first church that I believe was in West Virginia. And he says that when he first met this old man, he was old, he was illiterate, he was racist, and he had some cognitive disabilities. He's just kind of a miserable guy. But over time, as he engaged in church life, as he heard the gospel preached, he started to change. And uh, he talks about this in the words of the man who underwent this transformation. And he said this to his pastor. He said, there used to be a voice in my head that I had no answer for. It said, you're illiterate. You'll never amount to anything. Others are worth more than you are. God is watching everything you do and you must be really, really good. But now I know the truth. The gospel says there's no condemnation for me. I'm accepted by God and he loves me. And when that old voice says you'll never amount to anything, I tell it I already am something because Jesus loved me and he took my place in judgment so that I could have new life. End quote. That's just an example of this new self that we're told to put on in Ephesians 4 and 5. It, it, it's, it's not just one more voice in a sea of voices. It's Paul reminding us of something that's true for those who have decided to follow Christ. Uh, you can't understand this first goal as a verb. It's not just something that we try to do. It's a thing. It's a completed action that's happened in our past. So once we understand goal number one, to understand that we are new because of what Jesus has done for us, we get to goal two, and goal two is a verb. It is something that we try to do every day. And we can hear it here in Ephesians 5, 1-2. You follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In other words, once we understand that we have been made new because of what Jesus has done for us, and that can't change, and that's a completed thing, now we have to love others sacrificially as Jesus loved others sacrificially. And maybe right now, like, the record player scratched, and you are like, what? I gotta do that every day? If you guys are like me, sometimes when you read something in Scripture that's just extremely cross-cultural, there's a voice in your head that says, there's no way I can do something that's that different than what everybody around me does. And I'd like to say that this is especially cross-cultural for Montana. My experience as we come to Montana, it's difficult to make it here, it's difficult to last here, so we sort of reserve our best resources and our daily love for just people in a really tight circle. We don't necessarily love sacrificially for everybody that we come across like you might see in other places. i got kind of a funny example that illustrates that. Um, uh, about a year ago in the fall, I had to coach football over at the middle school and I had a, a son who had to get over here to the community park for soccer practice. There was no way I could be at two places at the same time. So my wife arranged with uh, the, the class, with the parent of one of my son's classmates that she would drive Nathaniel over to soccer practice when I had to coach football practice, and I ran over really quick to talk to her and just to say thank you. And um, since since Nathaniel didn't even know who this adult was, I said I'd like to give you my phone number so in case anything weird happens, you can just give me a call and I can come over and intercede and help out. And so this mom, who was good friends with my wife, she thought for a second and she said, Hmm. Yeah, okay, you guys have been here two years now. I'll take your number, and then she put it in her phone. And what she was saying was, there's just too many people that come here. There's too many people that cycle in and out. I just don't have the bandwidth to take somebody new into my phone. I don't have the bandwidth to, to take somebody new into the circle of who I might do a favor for or who I might help. But you guys have been here long enough now where I guess that would be okay. Well, I want to read Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 again. And I just want to point out that there's not a special clause given for people in Montana, right? There's not a special clause that says you don't have to do this. It says you follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us sacrificially. In other words, because we're new, we have a new, new clothes to put on, a new way to live. And the best summation of what that newness is is just to love a life of sacrificially overflowing love for others like Christ did. Those are our two goals. Let's wrap up here in the next five minutes or so with section three. What's the encouragement from this? Because the Bible is often very challenging, but it also flat out tells us what's going to be the difficulties of that and what are going to be the benefits of that. So let's wrap up with uh, two benefits of uh, of living a life towards these goals. There's three in your notes, but I'll combine A and B for the sake of time. All right, I think the most encouraging thing from this passage is this. We're going to thrive in this goal of putting on our new self as we cut off the habits and the behaviors of our former life. We are going to thrive and experience fruitfulness And this goal of living out our identity as a new person and putting on our new self and loving others sacrificially as we cut off the habits and the behaviors of our former life. And Paul says that more eloquently than I do here in chapter 5, verses 3 to 13. Let me repeat his words. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place. Instead, you should live with thanksgiving. For this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, greedy person such as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's punishment comes on those who are disobedient. Do not be partners with them. But you were once darkness, but now you're the light of the Lord. Live as children of light. The fruit of the light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. There's just two sets of lists right here in these verses that sort of describe the things that are characteristic of our old self, what we used to put on, and this identity is—is is, is this new stuff and this new these new clothes that we're supposed to put. On. I think a really good illustration of this is a movie that I watched a, a, a couple months ago. It's called Ford versus Ferrari. Have you guys ever seen that movie? It's kind of a guy movie, sorry, ladies. But the illustration is still good. And then, if you don't like cars, maybe you love cars. If you don't now, you don't have to see the movie because I'm going to tell you all about it. So it goes like this. Uh, In the early 1960s, Ford Motor Company wanted to enter this race called Le Mans, which is a 24-hour race in Italy. The problem is they would always lose to Ferrari. They would always lose to this Italian racing company. And no matter what they tried, they could never make any gains in winning this race, because the Europeans, it was was over in Italy, they had better technology, uh, and, and Ford could just never make any headway in winning this race. So the guy who was in charge of Ford at the time, uh, he found this guy named Carroll Shelby, who actually was a driver who won that 24-hour race in 1959. And he said, I guess we just don't know enough of how we can win this race, but you're a driver who's won it, so I'm going to put you in charge of the Ford Racing Division so that we can finally win Mans." And the fascinating thing about it is, is Shelby, was, you've probably heard of his cars. He was an excellent not only driver, but also a designer of cars. And so he creates his own division, uh, and they come up with a new brake system, and they come up with a new engine. And he's like, oh, I don't like your drivers. I know this guy, and he's a wild card, and, and he does things differently. And as they started to do things in a new way, they started to win all these qualifying races. And as Ford is finally starting to make all this headway as a race team, what happens if you watch the movie, well, all the old big kind of come in and they're like, oh, we're so proud of you. We're so glad that you're making all this headway. But now that we're getting all this attention, like we got to use our best Ford engine. We got to use this driver. We got to do things the way, since everybody's looking, we got to do things the way that we always used to do them. I think that is a beautiful illustration of what I've experienced as I try to put on the new self, right? Think about those lists and the verses that we just read. You try to live out goodness. You try to choose forgiveness. You try to get rid of unwholesome talk. You decide that you're not going to hold a grudge anymore. And just like Shelby Cobra, like you start to do well. You start to win races. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I do remember what it feels like to slander somebody that gets in your way. I do remember what it's like to, to, to just find a nice distraction doing this behavior that I used to do before, and then you revert back into the old patterns, and then you experience the old results as well. It's only in that movie, when they finally cut off all outside influence from Ford, that their racing team is is able to finally win that race, which they actually did in 1966. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5, 3 to 13. You will thrive in this goal of putting on the new self and living and loving as Christ loved when you cut off the habits and the behaviors of your former life. And there's nothing I hate more than a sermon that's just like, try harder, do better. I hope you're hearing that that is not what Paul is communicating here. He's not saying try harder so that you'll be loved by God. He's saying because you've been made new, experience the fruitfulness and the joy of that newness by cutting off Ford racing team and the old motor and the old driver and all the ways that you used to try to be successful. All right, let's wrap up with this. There's another encouragement from our passage and it's this. If this sounds impossible if it sounds impossible that you can stop being who you used to be 30 years ago and be somebody new in Christ, the good news is that God will create and transmit the power that we need to do this. Isn't that good news? You've ever been frustrated that you can't do this on your own? This passage is telling us we can't do it on our own, but it's telling us that God is going to transmit and create the power that we need to do so. Let's look at this final verse. This is kind of the conclusion of today's passage, and Paul says in verse 14, this is why we say, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And it's indented in a way that indicates everybody in this congregation knew what he was talking about, there's not really a specific place in the Bible that's being quoted here. It's clearly coming out of terminology from Isaiah 60, uh, but the, the explanation for this is that Paul is quoting a song that everybody in the church likes to sing. Does that make sense? Like what, what else could he quote except something that he as a pastor has sung with this congregation together, and clearly the song comes from Isaiah 60 and it's a passage about how God and his power is going to make Israel new. And it's a, it's a favorite song that they would have sung in their congregation about how God is going to give them the power to turn from darkness to be new and to experience that transformation. Just like you might go home today, just like you might be having a tough Monday and your roommate or your spouse who is with you right now might elbow you and say, hey, it's like beauty from ashes, like we sang on Sunday, right? And you remember back to those lyrics that we sang. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's telling us God will create and transmit the power that we need to live out this new life. And uh, I got a lot of illustrations of that as well. But let's wrap up. Um, I'd like the worship team to come forward. We're going to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you're new to Big Sky Christian Fellowship, this um, tells us that we are called to. Uh...